live on Sky News Australia, The Rita Panahi Show. Well, good evening and welcome to the show. I'm James McPherson. Let's get straight into it. Here's what's coming up tonight. A second state disqualifies Donald Trump from running in the 2024 presidential primary ballot. And it begs the question, why are the Democrats so afraid of Trump? And is it actually hurting his campaign? Concerns Anthony Albanese's green woke agenda that resonates with inner city elites isn't speaking to the needs of ordinary Australians. Who knew? especially in Queensland, and it may cost him the next election. National Senator Matt Canavan joins me later in the show. And one released Israeli hostage describes the horrors she encountered after 54 days trapped in Gaza with Hamas terrorists. But first, the Australian Bureau of Meteorology employs 1,500 staff and costs Australians around a million dollars a day. Ask people in waterlogged cans if they think they're getting value for money. The region was devastated by record rainfall that accompanied Cyclone Jasper, rainfall the Bureau failed to predict. Now, it's true the Bureau issued flood warnings around 9am on Sunday the 17th, but roads had been cut from around 9pm on Saturday the 16th. Some people were sitting on the roofs of their homes trying to escape floodwaters when they received a text message from the Bureau advising them to watch out for floodwaters. We pay the Bureau well over $300 million a year to tell us it's going to rain, not to tell us that it has rained, and so that's why you're sitting on your roof. And what about people on the Gold Coast? Ask them to rate the Bureau's forecasting performance. Southeast Queensland was smashed by a wild storm on Christmas evening that, according to the Gold Coast Mayor, Tom Tate, the Bureau warned people about 15 minutes after it happened. We'll be talking to... Uh... Um, bomb about um, what's going on regarding uh, warning because we can't warn people unless they gave us the data and uh, that part of it uh, is not good enough. What do you think about that for a lot of residents who didn't get that notice that this storm is going to hit? I think it's unforgivable. You know, so we've got to sort it that it doesn't happen again. Now, according to the Mayor, the Bureau emailed residents around 9pm on Christmas night to warn them of a storm that hit at 8.45pm. Again, the Bureau is being paid to provide forecasts, not history. Despite two massive failures from the Bureau in the space of just 10 days, Emergency Services Minister Murray Watt gave a full-throated defence of the Bureau. I've certainly seen the criticism that's been made uh, by a number of political figures over the last 24 hours of the Bureau of Meteorology. Um, and I'm here to say that we have full confidence in the ability of the Bureau of Meteorology in its prediction systems. Um, how can anyone have full confidence in the Bureau's prediction system when its predictions come after the event? If I told Murray what today that Anthony Albanese would win last year's election, would he claim full confidence in my predictions? Or would he say, James, you sound perfectly suited to work at the Bureau of Meteorology? And while the minister has full confidence in the Bureau's predictions, the Bureau apparently does not. It was revealed today that the Bureau of Meteorology is requiring people to agree they should not have full confidence in the Bureau's weather app before the Bureau will allow them to download it. The Australian reported, the Bureau of Meteorology is requiring people to absolve it of legal liability for any loss, damages or costs they incur from forecasts which it warns carry a degree of uncertainty before granting access to its app. 
users of the Bureau of Meteorology app now have to agree to a 699-word terms and conditions statement that includes information at this app may not be accurate, current or complete. Now, I know what you're thinking. Does the Bureau issue similar disclaimers when advising the government on climate change policy and predictions for the end of the century? I'm not allowed to download the Bureau's app without agreeing they might get tomorrow's forecast completely wrong. And yet Chris Bowen is dismantling and rebuilding our energy grid at enormous cost and huge risk based on faith. The Bureau's got its forecast for 2050 absolutely correct. If the Bureau shouldn't be held accountable for tomorrow's forecast because, well, it's difficult to predict the weather and let's be honest, sometimes the Bureau is less accurate than simply looking out your window or watching what the ants are doing, why should we believe their apocalyptic predictions about the weather 50 years from now? Meteorology is not a perfect science. Uh, the Bureau of Meteorology do the absolute best they can with the science they have available. Uh, but this proves the point that there are sometimes weather systems that even with the best will in the world and the best possible science can't be absolutely predicted down to the precise detail. What does Minister Watt mean when he says meteorology is not a perfect science? I thought the science was settled. Or does he mean meteorology is not a perfect science if we're talking about, you know, 48 hours from now, but it's absolutely certain if we're talking 100 years from now? Without realising it, Murray Watt has defined the idiocy of Chris Bowen and the government's approach to climate change. If the Bureau of Meteorology is exercising a little humility when it comes to their ability to predict the future, just maybe the government should exercise a little humility rather than recklessly destroying our way of life in the name of climate science while demonising anyone who urges caution. Or, if they're as certain as they claim, agree to indemnify us from any loss, damages or costs we incur from Chris Bowen's forecasts. Well, let's bring in Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre. Nick, the pain continues for people in Queensland. There are still thousands of houses without electricity. Temperatures in the southeast hit 36 degrees today, so those who don't have electricity have no aircon. And the Bureau are warning of dangerous, severe storms for tomorrow. Can it get any worse? It's, it's hot in Queensland in summer, right? And, uh, <laughs> and you, you raised some very valid points about the, the Bureau of Meteorology's failure to predict this. I know these sort of storm systems can be a little bit unpredictable, but they've got to do better than this, haven't they? And the people without power, James. I mean, 20,000 people, I think, still without power because power lines have come down because of the weather. And yet we're going to build another 10,000 kilometres of power lines to keep the, uh, the grid alive when we go to renewables. The whole thing is illogical and uh, I don't think there's a single engineer within 10 kilometres when they made some of these decisions. I was going to ask you on that, once we're 100% renewables, we've got wind turbines everywhere and solar panels. I mean, in Queensland and especially up north, how are they going to survive severe storms, which, as you said, are a regular part of summer in Australia? And they're going to get worse, apparently, and so we're told, right? Climate change means we're going to have more extreme weather events and, and more storms, more power lines coming down. I mean, the number of power line uh, failures in Queensland in the last few days, and indeed before that in, uh, in central and northern Queensland, has been huge, and they're struggling to deal with them. And, and that is just what happens. Power lines are vulnerable, and yet we are going to build even more, apparently. It, 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 I think, James, it just goes through the... 
the obvious point that the renewable only future is not going to work. And Queensland, you know, I'm just looking on the on the on the national energy market site just now, fifteen thousand dollars a megawatt hour is what they were paying half an hour ago on the wholesale market in Queensland. Luckily, Queensland can survive because it's still got a, a lot of coal, but all that's going to be phased out by the middle of the 2030s. And and then what? I, you know, it just really is unrealistic and unthought through what the government is planning. Just staying on uh, the tragedy in Queensland with the weather there, um, people on the southeast, uh, especially in Mount Tambourine on the Gold Coast, have been critical of not receiving help. Uh, the SES are doing their best, but many have called for the army to be out removing trees from the road, helping people. I just want to get your thoughts, because this has been an ongoing debate. Should the military be utilised in times of disasters, or should they focus specifically on defence? And if that's what they're doing, then don't we need some sort of other institution or organisation to help in the events such as we're seeing right now? Possibly we do. And I, I think the way that we've used the army is just to fill in the gaps. I mean, ridiculously, of course, during COVID, we had army officers patrolling borders between Queensland and New South Wales. That is ludicrous. That is a ludicrous waste of defence staff. We could valuably use it elsewhere. Yeah, sure, you know, there's a training element to it, but I just don't think the army or the military are there just to, to go out and, and pull down broken trees or whatever. You know, we need, we need proper... Uh, SES uh, arrangements to do that. Look, but let's face it, James, they're always going to be stretched at a time like this. You can never provision for enough yeah. people to cover these emergencies. And uh, this is when, of course, the wonderful thing you see is that people in local communities start pitching in and doing things for themselves. And Queenslanders are pretty good at that. Yeah, well, that is true. It seems like every summer the good news story in Queensland is neighbour helping neighbour, so you're quite right about that. Let's go to the Middle East. Today, the US sanctioned an Iranian-based financier and two companies accused of funnelling money to the Houthi rebels who are terrorising cargo ships in the Red Sea. This comes as uh, the attacks continue. At least a dozen ships attacked since November 19. Now, the United States have formed a, I think it's a 10-nation coalition, but the US seem to be the only ones making moves to stop them. So I want to find out, Nick, how is it that a bunch of Houthi terrorists from Yemen are causing, you know, the world's shipping to be held hostage? This is outrageous, isn't it? Well, they're very well equipped, of course, and uh, assisted vastly by Iran and indirectly from China and Russia, too. So, I mean, this is the axis of evil, James. And I, I, just for Richard Miles to say that this is not our business, right, he said that we can't send a warship because we need warships to deal with problems in our region. Wait a minute, this is, there, there is a global issue here of security at stake. We expect and we get help from British, from the French, who send warships to the uh, South China Sea to help patrol the South China Sea and, and just show China that there's a united front. We have to do the same in that neck of the woods because in the end, this is the same joined up conflict which involves China, Iran, Russia and, and, uh, and their proxies. And we, we have to be prepared to be there and show uh, the, the, the international uh, condemnation is strong and, and so strong that we're prepared to send a warship there. I think our failure to do so we showed a massive, uh, it was a massive failure by this government and showed a complete lack of courage. 
Uh, you're right that the Houthis are backed by Iran, but it's been amazing for me to see these Houthi rebels with their drones, uh, you know, flaunting themselves against the world's superpower, that is the US, attacking their ships and, uh, and others. I don't know if you've seen this video, Nick, but it's just come to light after the US announced their task force to counter the Houthi rebels. They've been uh, boasting about their air force power and they've released a video of one of their aircraft to the Top Gun song Danger Zone playing in the background. Have a look. Now, I don't think anyone seriously believes the Houthi tur uh, rebels, I was going to say tourists then, the Houthi terrorists are going to uh, take on the might of America. But um, aren't they just poking America in the face with videos like that? Because they're getting away with it. Was that Tom Cruise on board? I, I didn't see it, but look, I, yeah, they are. I, I think it, it, it seems that the, I mean, the rules of war have changed. Technology has, has moved on and, and the dynamics of strategy of warfare have changed uh, quite sharply and the drones being one of the big uh, additions to and this has worked of course in favor of, of freedom and in favor of the west in ukraine where they've become very efficient at using drones some made out of cardboard i understand hmm. but we're also going to find that it's, it, our enemies will be onto this too because it is is cheap and available technology and we have to learn to keep one step ahead of them and, and to counter them uh, but uh, the houthi air force that's a new thing on me. I, I had no idea. It looks pretty intimidating. Hey, listen, before I let you go, Nick, Argentina's new president has just passed the most sensible law in world history. I want to get your thoughts on this. From now on in Argentina, governmental institutions can no longer use the word free to promote any state service. So they can't promote free childcare or free TAFE or free dental care because he considers that to be a lie. Someone always pays, usually the taxpayer. Now, do you think that's a good idea? And if it was implemented in Australia, do you think the Greens would be able to campaign at all? <laughs> Javier Malai, I love this guy. I love what he's doing there and bringing some economics, common sense to Argentina. It needs it. Uninflation's running at about 150% there. And, of course, one of the big drivers of inflation is government spending. So he's quite right to point out to people that there is no such thing as free money. The governments only spend what they can... Uh, take from people in taxes or borrow on their behalf. And the spending has to stop. Argentina needs to stop. And I think this is a great idea. Take away the word free. We should definitely do that here. Uh, the Greens, of course, um, it would completely offend their, their view of the world. They'd be out and, of business. And how it works. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> we should do it here. No more free stuff from the government because it's not free. We are on a unity ticket on that one. Nick Cater, thanks so much for your time. Coming up, the horrifying details from a 21-year-old released Israeli hostage. She describes the horror of being at the mercy of Hamas in Gaza. Her story comes up next. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Welcome back to the program. 
Well, Australian security agencies are on alert for signs of local violence linked to the conflict in the Middle East after two Australians were killed in Lebanon, one of whom was fighting for Hezbollah. The government says it's working closely with intelligence agencies to mitigate risks. I personally have no faith in Andrew Giles' ability to handle this properly. Speaking to The Australian, the acting Home Affairs Minister said, "'Social cohesion is our most valuable national asset. Our government is working with our intelligence agencies to ensure that violence overseas does not precipitate violence in Australia.'" Let's bring in Strategic Analysis Australia Director Michael Shoebridge. Michael, I agree that social cohesion is our most valuable national asset, but for this government to say that, we've watched this government bungle our social cohesion time and time again, haven't we? Well, James, yes. The voice referendum was an appalling failure of leadership from the Prime Minister that did nothing but drive social division. And some of the confused messages out of different government ministers on the Israel-Hamas war have added to that problem. My view is social cohesion is a huge asset to Australia, but that's enabled by ensuring that every Australian acts in accordance with our laws. So if you've got people protesting, shouting from the river to the sea, which is saying Israel has no right to exist, Israelis should be exterminated, they're committing an offence and they should be prosecuted under Australian law. To let that happen and do nothing enables violence domestically. It doesn't stop it. Well, you're quite right when you mentioned The Voice. That did nothing to help social cohesion. You uh, insinuate quite rightly that the government have not done much to stop anti-Semitism. And then recently, the boss of ASIO defended pro-Palestinian marches happening every week on the basis that it was an opportunity to let off steam, otherwise we might end up with some sort of terror attack in Australia. I would have thought those marches are more likely to further radicalise people rather than calm people down. What did you think of those comments? I think he's made a, a mistake, a wrong judgement, because so often we see at these protests people that clearly support what Hamas did. And when they chant slogans like from the river to the sea, that is really just mainlining the Hamas terrorist organization's charter, which is about exterminating Israelis and exterminating the state of Israel. This, this idea that we're letting pressure bleed off by enabling violence-promoting protests is a grave mistake. Just uh, before we move on, because I, I want to get to uh, an Israeli hostage who's just given an interview about her time in Gaza, but I, I wanted to ask you, how serious is the threat of things escalating domestically because of what's happening overseas? Because we're getting mixed messages from security agencies, I think. You know, they're saying the marches are a good thing. On the other hand, we've now got an Australian in Lebanon fighting with Hezbollah that we're not sure whether the government were aware of that or not. How concerned should Australians be? I think we should be concerned enough that we should want to see some arrests and some prosecutions for people that are enabling terrorist organisations like Hezbollah, where an Australian who's been killed in Lebanon has been celebrated by Hezbollah as being a member. Whether his family say the same, I don't know, but Hezbollah think he was a fighter with them. So anyone that's supporting that terrorist organisation is committing an offence under Australian law. They should be prosecuted for that. The public should know that's happening. That should deter others from 
just blithely supporting terrorism. And the same for Hamas. It took a long time to get Hamas officially listed in Australia as a terrorist organisation. Now, anyone who is funding, supporting or working with Hamas in Australia should be prosecuted for it. That's the kind of message that the government needs to send, not some kind of kumbaya chanting thing about these protests are a good. They're not a good. They're enabling and supporting terrorist violence. Uh, a released Israeli hostage, Mia Shem, has given an interview describing her 55 days being held captive in Gaza. Uh, the 21-year-old was snatched by Hamas terrorists from the Supernova Music Festival on October 7. So she's gone on Israeli television describing being attacked, molested, kidnapped into Gaza, threatened, held hostage by a civilian family before she was released as part of a ceasefire deal last month. I want to play you just a short clip and get your reaction. Now, she says that she was held hostage by a Gazan family, and where she was held hostage, she had women and children around. Is that surprising to you? She says that it's like one big family there, Gazans and Hamas. It's all intertwined. Well, James, I don't think there's any doubt that Hamas has fairly strong support with a large group of the Palestinian population in Gaza. Some of them will have been pushed to be closer supporters of Hamas because of the war. But really, to think that Hamas are anything but a murderous, brutal terrorist outfit, when you hear stories like we're hearing from this Israeli woman and you see investigative reports as has happened around the rapes and horrible brutalization of women that Hamas committed on the 7th of October, the reality of this war and the horror that the Israelis are facing really needs to be weighed in the scales much more than we hear about it in Australia, where it's like helpless Palestinians who are innocents in this. Well, some of these Palestinians are Hamas terrorists and some of them are enabling the Hamas, ter Hamas terrorists and what they have done is unspeakably brutal. And so when you hear reports as that one from a hostage who said she was held by Gazan families in Gaza as a hostage, and then we've got our government bringing almost 1,000 Palestinian refugees into Australia with very quick security checks, and, of course, not all Palestinians support Hamas, but a lot do. They have overwhelming support. Polls have proved that. It makes you wonder why the Australian government and with the terror warnings that we've just been talking about would make such a move? James, I think we're at risk of thinking Australia is such a safe place. What happens in the Middle East has no implications for us here in Australia. It has real implications. We have large ethnic populations from all of those countries. So Lebanon, the Lebanese ethnic community in Australia is a very valuable part of our community. But some of the people are connected to very nasty, dangerous people in groups like Hezbollah. We have to be very clear-eyed about this, and the communities themselves are, but we also have to enforce our law to have our population understand that we're keeping Australia as a safe place. And unfortunately, we've got to be much more clear-eyed about the security side of things than the government has shown it's willing to be to date. Yeah, well, I'd love to have a clear-eyed government. That'd be a wonderful thing. Michael, thank you for your time.
Well, it's been a big year for the royal family. We've had the coronation of the king. We've gotten used to Queen Camilla. Sarah Ferguson joined the royal family at Sandringham for the first time in decades. And, of course, the rift between Harry and the monarchy continued. Let's bring in Associate Editor at the Daily Mail, Russell Myers. Russell, uh, tell me your highlights this year for the royal family and then I want to get what's your big low light for the year? Well, good evening, James. Well, I mean, you've just been through it all and if you'd have told me that a few years ago, sort of the highs and the lows and the sort of the tumultuous time that the royal family would have had, I don't think anyone would have believed you. But I think you start off at the beginning of the year, we had Harry's memoir spare which was an absolute bombshell throughout the royal family we're still talking about it now it's still picking up the pieces of his sort of battered relationship with his father and his brother i mean absolutely nobody excuse the pun was spared from his barbs in that book and i think we'll still see the sort of the repercussions of that in the next year or two and uh, and whether harry can sort of find a way back into the family remains to be seen but then of course the coronation you know huge pomp pageantry went off without a hitch i think that charles uh, and Camilla could uh, could sort of cross that off as a job well done. And then sort of coming into the sort of back end of the year, we've still had a sort of bit of controversy. What's going to happen with Prince Andrew being named in a, in a defamation case we expect in the next couple of days in the state? So, you know, the, the scandal and the infighting is still rumbling on for the royal family. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how they move across that over the next year or two. The, the scandal and the infighting, how's that affected the popularity of the royal family in the UK? We'll talk about Australia in a second, but are they as popular in the UK as they were when uh, Queen Elizabeth was alive? Well, it's certainly interesting. I'm sure that Charles would have been watching these polls, you know, avidly and thinking, you know, where, where did he sit? Because obviously the, the Queen was so revered, not only in the UK, but around the world. But Charles is is really polling at a level pegging with his late mother. And I think that's really very interesting that people have probably... There's a lot going on in the world. There's Brexit, there's wars across the, across the nations. And so if people like a bit of continuity. So it'll be interesting to see over the next sort of two to five years, I think, where Charles's legacy is shaped because he's 75 years old. He's obviously not going to have a huge run at the top job. And, uh, and I think he needs to hit the ground running over the next 12 months and, uh, and sort of try and cement that legacy moving forward. It's interesting what you say. With all the uh, calamity around the world, there's something about the tradition of the royal family. I remember when the coronation happened, I had many friends who really weren't that interested in the royals, but they took comfort from a ceremony that was a 1,000 years old. It was something that was stable and secure in a world where you wake up every morning not knowing what is going to happen. So you might be right about that. Let me ask you about the year to come. Uh, there's a lot going to happen, obviously, in 2024, including uh, Charles visiting Australia. Now, he's waited a couple of years to visit Australia after becoming king. Do you think that's too long, bearing in mind that our present government is committed to a republic. We've got a minister for a republic. I don't know what he does, but uh, bearing in mind the Australian government's uh, bias towards becoming a republic, uh, has Charles left it a bit late to visit Australia and how important will that visit be? Well, certainly, I mean, it's huge, hugely important visit. I mean, I was practically astonished because I thought that uh, Charles would, would have wanted to get out to certainly Commonwealth countries you know, our, our big uh, Commonwealth cousins like yourself and Canada as soon as possible. And my understanding was that certainly was 
on the cards. But you look at what is happening back here in the UK. We're still trying to pick up the pieces of the bonfire of Brexit. Uh, the, the government of the day wanted him to get out and see France and Germany, and then they had the coronation. So there's been a bit of sort of moving of chess pieces. However, big, big tours coming up, and we've got to get to see you guys down under next October. There's going to be a trip to Canada. And I think it will be, a, a, as I said, a, a lot more activity this year for Charles and the rest of the royal family. We've got the Prince and Princess of Wales are going to be out throughout Europe as well. But... Again, you look at where the royal family are sort of stationed at the moment, and um, it will be interesting to see public support and whether that wanes not only in the UK, but Australia and Canada as well. I thought maybe the king hadn't been to Australia just because he was still sooking like Piers Morgan and others over there about the cricket result. <laughs> hey, just quickly, um, Meghan and Harry, give us a big tip. What's going to happen? Are they going to split up? Is uh, Harry going to say sorry and be reunited with his father? They were voted losers of the year by one magazine just recently. What's going to happen with them in 2024? Well, James, if, if, even if I gave you a prediction, it will probably, you know, be <laughs> completely the opposite because what has happened with Harry and Meghan has been an absolute bonfire, not only sort of the trashing of their own reputations and their reputations of relationships with the, with the family. I, I can't imagine uh, what is going to happen. Meghan says there's big, exciting things on the slate. Let's wait and see because uh, whatever happens, we'll all be talking about it. We certainly will be. Russell, thank you so much for your time. And don't forget to tune in to The Royal Report with the brilliant Caroline DeRusso. She'll be along straight after this program. Well, coming up, the Democrats are doing all they can to splinter Donald Trump's campaign with another state disqualifying the former president from running in the 2024 presidential primary ballot. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back. Well, the US presidential election will be held next year and it's going to be unlike any we've seen before with the Democrats working hard to keep frontrunner Donald Trump off the ballot completely. Maine is the latest state to ban Trump from appearing on the primary ballot, citing a Civil War 14th Amendment that disqualifies from public office those who swore to defend the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the US. Maine's top election official, Sheena Bellows, says Trump used incendiary language about his election loss and didn't do enough to stop the riot at the Capitol. Well, she would say that. She's a former Democrat senator. Maine is the third state to rule Trump ineligible, although the Michigan Supreme Court has since overturned that state's ban and the Colorado ban is about to be challenged. Let's bring in my panel tonight, Spectator podcast host Will Kingston and Managing Director of Strategy and Policy at Agenda C, Parnell McGuinness. Parnell, how can a clownish January 6th riot be an insurrection when no one was armed, there was no plan to seize power and protesters were advised by the supposed insurrectionists to uh, peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. This is ridiculous, is it not? 
Well, there are different interpretations depending on sort of whose version you listen to. I mean, I think one thing that you can say about that January 6th riot is that it really terrified Americans and, and probably a lot of the world about the direction that US politics might take. So I think that there is an understandable sort of fear around that. Um, and, and of course, you know, you can minimise some signs. You can say, you can point to the times in which Donald Trump um, sort of urged peace, but you can also point to times in which he encouraged there to be some kind of action. And as I say, it's really down to the reading of, um, of the two sides, how you might have interpreted that. Now, why they're bringing it up now, that's, a, that's another matter entirely. And I mean, I think now what we're seeing is Democrats really genuinely afraid that um, Trump is going to be the candidate for the Republicans again, and that given that they've got Biden, who is practically unelectable on their side, um, that Trump's going to be in with a real chance. Indeed, I think they're very afraid that Trump is going to be elected. John Howard has said he would not vote for Trump. He's told the Australian newspaper, once Trump refused to accept the outcome, I wrote him off. I just thought that was a complete fraud on the Australian public and the democratic system. Now, John Howard says he didn't get all upset when Rudd beat him. But it's a bit different, isn't it, Will? I mean, in America, they had C-grade celebrities recording videos urging the Electoral College to abandon the wishes of the people and vote against Trump, even though they were representing a state that had voted for him. They had big tech censoring information that would have been negative to the Biden campaign. A bit rich from John Howard? Oh, James, far be it from me to uh, to be blasphemous in uh, in in saying a bad word about John. But uh, look, well, he's, it's John Howard. Matter. He's not the Pope. <laughs> no, that's fair. But the, look, the the point is that it's a two party system, and I can't believe that this doesn't actually get raised more often. Uh, the reality is that you've got to vote for either Biden or Trump. Now, look, the fact of the matter is that Trump's first three years pre-pandemic was a pretty conventional Republican presidential uh, or presidency with some nasty tweets thrown in. It was low tax. There were some good things that was done around peace, Middle East and peace treaties, lower regulation. The economy was booming. Uh, now, you've just got to weigh up the pros and cons that come with Trump against the alternative that is Biden. Now, I'm not personally a fan of a lot of the the hoopla that comes with Trump, but at the same time, I think you can make a very good pragmatic argument that the total package is still on balance probably better than a Biden presidency. All right, let's go to the World Economic Forum. They've told us we need to eat bugs to save the planet. Now they're telling us that if the Earth is to survive, we need to wash our clothes less. Take a look at this. Now, this would explain the condition of many climate protesters that we see on our streets, wouldn't it? Oh, come on. How often are people washing their clothes that they need to be told this 
Yes, by the World by the World Economic Forum. I mean, honestly, okay, so I went into this thinking my tween is going to be a fan of this. It's going to tell him that he's not going to have to wash his clothes for ages and ages. But really, if I had to wash any more than the recommended amounts um, of things for this, I would be spending half of my life doing laundry for the family. That is ridiculous. Look, those are completely reasonable amounts of time. Plus, of course, always wash your socks and underwear after every time you wear them. You know? Good advice. I mean, climate protesters don't shower already, so I'm sure they'll adapt to not washing clothes as, as well. Hey, it's fair to say Victoria police aren't exactly known for their sense of humour. Take a look at this moment from the uh, MCG test as uh, punters at the cricket are just trying to have a bit of fun. So, Will, they're at the MCG. It's a hot day. There's not much happening on the field. So they've got all the plastic beer, bottle, beer cups together and they're chanting, you can't, you can't stop the snake. They've made a, a beer cup snake. But apparently, you're not allowed to do that. The police break it up. Are, are the fun police ruining everything in this country? Mm. Well, James, I, I am more and more reminded of the old line that we were descended from convicts, but we were also descended from jailers. Uh, I, I don't blame the police here. Uh, I blame, I think we need to have a look in the mirror as a society. I think what COVID demonstrated, I think what this stuff increasingly demonstrates is that far too many of us are comfortable with this sort of soft authoritarianism. Uh, it, we need to have a conversation as a society and say, look, do we want to get back a bit of that old anti-authoritarian, laid back, no worries mentality that was once what Australia was known for, or are we comfortable with this sort of nonsense, this sort of authoritarianism for the sake of authoritarianism? My bigger worry than having over uh, zealous police officers is that far too many Australians actually support this type of stuff. Parnell, I'm not sure if you're a sporting fan or not, but maybe that video says less about the police than it does about cricket. <laughs> well, I think people having fun at a game of sport is OK by me. And really, I mean, you saw the expression on that policeman's face when he interrupted the snake. I just thought, what a what a spoiled sport. You know, give these guys a bit of fun. It's just a game and people and they weren't getting in anybody's way. They really this was a matter of overreach, in my opinion. And and we do have to like, I'm not sure that Australians ever were the larrikins that we pretend we were, but maybe that is aspirational. You know, maybe that sort of national character that we believed we had is something that we could all together aspire to become, even if we never were it in the past. I reckon you might be right about that. Hey, uh, an alarming poll by the Daily Mail has re revealed one in five young Americans have a, get this, a positive view of Osama bin Laden. Now, this comes after bin Laden's letter to America went viral on TikTok recently. If you didn't catch that, have a look. This letter, it becomes apparent to me that the actions of 9-11 and those acts committed against the USA and its people were all just the buildup of our government failing other nations. The way this letter is going viral right now is giving me the greatest sense of relief. So I just read a letter to America and I will never look at life the same. I will never look at this country the same. I will never... I, 
Parnell, if you'd told me at the start of this year that uh, by December we'd be talking about how one in five young Americans is fawning over Osama bin Laden, I would never have believed you. I know, that was, a, that was the shock of this year, wasn't it? It's incredible to me and yet not incredible because if you think about the sort of things that we've allowed people to be taught, um, and I guess, you know, the great thing about liberal democracy is that we do criticise ourselves. We look at our own society and we say, this is what's wrong. But what we've forgotten to do, and certainly what has the ways in which these kids have been failed in America, is nobody's told them, you know, as well as criticising society, look at all of the great things that this society has achieved. Look at the freedoms that America has that aren't available to people elsewhere in the world, certainly not where Osama bin Laden came from. I think that there is a real sort of missing piece of education there that has laid the, laid the groundwork for these kids to have such a twisted idea of the world that they live in that they, that they now think that Osama bin Laden was making sense. Just before we go, Will, if we're in an existential crisis right now, and it's not just about what's happening in the Middle East, but literally it's about Western civilization fighting for its values, how do we do that when one in five young Americans have those kinds of attitudes? Courage, in a word, James. The only cure for cancel culture is courage culture uh we need to be okay with being proud of western civilization there are too many people that say you're racist if you stand up for the values of western civilization we need to be strong enough to say that that is nonsense there is so much good in our history uh and, and we need to be proud of that fact and we need more people in more positions of power who are who are sent selling that message will and parnell thank you for your time well after the break why anthony albanese's inner city elitism could cost him the next election. It's coming up. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're only halfway through Anthony Albanese's first term in office and already there are concerns he could be a one-term wonder. In Queensland, a key state where federal Labor holds just five of 30 seats, the ALP's primary vote is tanking at just 27%, according to the most recent news poll. Now Labor MP Shane Newman is warning colleagues they will be a minority government unless they pick up more seats in Queensland at the next election. But how do you win more seats in a mining state while campaigning for net zero? And how does Anthony Albanese attract support in a conservative state like Queensland when he seems to spend most of his time playing to his own inner Sydney seat of Marrickville? Joining me to discuss this is Queensland National Party Senator Matt Canavan, Matt, is it fair to say that Albanese's special brand of inner-city elitism is not supported by the majority of Queenslanders? 
Well, that certainly seems to be indicated uh, by those polls, James, and it's also indicated to me when I when I get around the state, uh, especially up here in central Queensland. Uh, I mean, this state is built on the back of uh, those who produce things. We're a proud, wealth-producing state. We're not a mendicant state. We don't rely on welfare from others. We produce things. We produce things of high value uh, that, that make a lot of money for our country, create a lot of jobs, and, of course, end up sending a lot of tax revenues both down to... Brisbane and Canberra to fund the inner city elitism that you just mentioned. So people are pretty proud uh, of the industries that do that, that they work in, that provides their livelihoods. The farming, the mining industries uh, are right up the top of there. And, and pretty much everything the Albanese government is doing when you think about those industries is trying to shut them down or make their lives harder. Uh, one of the major pieces of legislation we just passed before we went to Christmas was this new Murray-Darling plan, which is all about taking more water off farmers, reducing agricultural production, making it harder for country towns to sustain themselves and have a brighter future. And, of course, the, the Labor Party uh, basically wants to shut down the coal industry. They have, a, they have a safeguard mechanism, which is year after year putting more and more cost on the coal mining industry. Uh, they're telling us they're going to bring in hydrogen jobs. It's all a lot of hot air and people know it. They know they've got a very good detector up here in North Queensland where they're being lied to. And they're being lied to time and time again by this government who cannot bring themselves to defend the jobs and livelihoods of people uh, in Queensland north of the Tweed. Now, to be fair, Scott Morrison committed the LNP to, or the, the uh, coalition to net zero. So what's going to be different with the Liberals? Well, look, I would say so when you look at the polls, the primary vote of both major parties is relatively low. And I think a lot of that is because we've failed to, uh, our own side, and I've been critical of this, have failed to outline a coherent agenda here. I think this, this issue, whether it's uh, you want to describe it as net zero, uh, uh, what to do about climate change, uh, there are choices to be made. There's, it's a time for choosing. Uh, and I'm very firmly of the belief that a strong centre-right Conservative Party should choose our livelihoods, our nation's prosperity over genuflecting uh, to these international gods uh, who want us to handicap our own economy, our own industry uh, for no environmental benefit. The only benefit will be uh, a free kick to those countries like China and India and many others in Asia, Africa, who do nothing uh, to reduce climate change or reduce carbon emissions, I should say, in their own economy. So all we'll do is give a leg up uh, to our competitors, send our jobs offshore. Uh, I think we should be proudly defending our own industries, defending our nation's uh, best interests and our best interests in my view are making sure we continue to have uh, productive industries that provide uh, provide great services including cheaper energy we should be a party that wants to develop all our energy sources whereas at the moment we're picking and choosing uh, whether it's nuclear on our side or or, or or renewables of course batteries hydrogen on the other side uh, we should be doing all things we should be building coal-fired power stations gas-fired power stations because we should have a country of energy abundance in Australia. And if we have energy abundance, your power bills will be a lot lower. Tell me how it's going to work in Queensland next year. We've got a state election and most people are expecting the state Labor Party are going to be wiped out. And most people are indeed hoping for that. But then that changes the balance in Queensland, doesn't it? Where we've had very strong Labor state government for many years. And perhaps that's why federally Labor haven't done so well, because people like, don't they, to have maybe one party at federal and a different party at a state level. Does that change the equation? Well, look, I'm, I'm going to take uh, Yogi Berra's get-out-of-jail card here and say, look, predictions are very, are very difficult, especially when they're about the future. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think you can say it'll be a... 
uh, given uh, that uh, that the Labor government here will be voted out. Uh, I think that if, if we on my side of politics uh, decide that it's a given, that's a recipe for us to lose. Because normally when you go out in a football field thinking you can't lose, well, you normally do. You end up losing. We can definitely lose this. We've got a lot of work to do. The polls are still pretty close, as they always will be. Elections are always relatively close. There's a lot of seats for the LNP to win up here north of Tweed. Uh, so it will be a big Herculean task. Look, I definitely think the, the government's on the nose. That's why they got rid of their own leader. Yeah. Obviously, she, she was uh, terminally unpopular, Anastasia Palaszczuk. This is a last-ditch Hail Mary attempt here uh, to pull off an unlikely victory for the Labor Party. But, look, there's a long way to go here. So who knows how that will play out. Um, ultimately, though, I think whatever the result of the Queensland election is, I think people are pretty savvy and they'll judge this government, they'll judge the Albanese government uh, on their record. And I think Anthony Albanese was thinking he'd skate through the next election, continuing to contest and be against Scott Morrison. He'd, he'd effectively fight another election against Scott Morrison. Well, I think Peter Dutton's a very formidable opponent, and the next election will be a referendum on this government and on his promises, like his promise to cut power bills by $275. If he hasn't delivered that, well, it's going to be very, very hard work for the Labor Party to be re-elected. Speaking of Peter Dutton, he said the government's decision not to send a warship to the Red Sea to help stop Iran-backed rebels from attacking cargo ships is going to hurt Australians at the petrol bowser. Can you just talk me through that? Well, look, obviously, if we have disruptions to uh, trade routes and higher costs of freight, uh, those goods that uh, will cost more to get here will go up in price. And we unfortunately are in a situation now where we import... Uh, well over almost all of our refined oil needs. We only have two oil refineries left and, in fact, we import more than half of our raw petroleum needs in net terms. So this will hurt us. It will hurt our economy uh, by not having more efficient trade routes uh, uh, available. Uh, now, I think we should have made a contribution. Well, apparently we've, <laughs> our contribution has been six military personnel, six military <laughs> yes. personnel uh, sent to this request. I mean, uh, I, I, I think this must be the first time in history that an expeditionary force has been able to fit into business class on a plane to go over uh, to help a situation. I, I, it's just beggar's belief why you'd even bother with six people. I don't think the Yanks are desperately waiting on that. Uh, and so, look, I, I, it's very unfortunate we haven't made a contribution, a more sizable contribution, one that was requested us in a ship. We obviously have a very big interest as a nation in maintaining peaceful, free uh, flow of goods and freight right across the world. And uh, this is, a, this is a pretty much one of the most important bottlenecks in the world in the Red Sea, in the Suez Canal. Uh, we should be doing what we can to help. Matt, just before we go, we've got a tiny bit of time left. Uh, you're in Queensland. Obviously, we've seen disasters in the north, now in the southeast. Just uh, tell me your impressions of what's happened and how the recovery is being handled. Well, look, it's been devastating, absolutely devastating. You're right. We saw them in Cairns, those terrible floods, and I've just been in southeast Queensland visiting family and. And, uh, and they've been affected with power out. Unfortunately, no injuries or anything like that. But there's still people with power out in some of the hottest conditions uh, in the year. So it's very, very tough for people. And, of course, we've had 10 people lose their lives. It's yeah. very, very sad. So hope everyone just keeps safe and gets through these dangerous times. Absolutely. Matt Canavan, thank you so much for your time. Well, that's all the time I've got. But up next is the Royal Report with the brilliant Caroline DeRusso. Stay tuned. I'm Andrew Rule, the host of the podcast, A Life and Crimes. Here are some of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. The brutal truth is that when you start looking at it, they always kill or injure a lot more than each other. The professional hitman used to be a professional hitman. Evil strikes in 
all forms, but particularly as stupidity. Life and Crimes is available wherever you get your podcasts.